Welcome to MindHub Podcast, episode 10. Today, we have our very first guest, which is awesome. And that happens to be Laura Anderson, who is an awesome trauma therapist and someone who has been super helpful for me regarding the content that she puts out on social media. And I wanted to have her come on and talk a bit about trauma and how things like can relate to food and body image and and all that fun stuff. So welcome, Laura. Uh, feel free to introduce yourself or correct anything that I might have accidentally fucked up. <laughs> no, you didn't. You didn't fuck anything up. Hello, it's really good to be here. Um, yeah, brief introduction. My name is Laura Anderson. I. I'm a licensed psychotherapist with a private practice in Tennessee. I also do coaching that allows me to see people outside of the state of Tennessee. Um, my, my specialty is complex trauma. And within that, I see a lot of people that are dealing with religious trauma, sexual assault, and uh, domestic violence. I'm also the co-founder of the Religious Trauma Institute, and I'm finishing up my PhD, writing my dissertation right now, and my research is around the experience of uh, living in a healing body after sexual trauma. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, so trauma is kind of my jam. Uh, I feel like sometimes I live, eat, breathe, sleep, uh, but I enjoy it. And so that's how we met, uh, Cody and I. And over Instagram and trauma posts and religious trauma stuff and all the all all the things. <laughs> yeah, that's a little yeah. bit about me. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So, uh, that's a lot. <laughs> like you you do a lot. That's <laughs> yeah. That's it's funny. Like I. I do. And I'm starting to realize that I have a girlfriend of mine who's like, how do you do so much? And I'm like, I don't know. I just I just <laughs> do it. Um, but I, as I've been doing my dissertation, I've started to realize like how much that is because I just feel exhausted with, you know, working from home and then doing school. And then, of course, everything that we have going on in our country with COVID and Black Lives Matter and all of these sorts of things that it just, it's a lot. It is. So I'm actually off this week. So you caught me on a good time <laughs> and um, it's taken me roughly like five days to feel like, Oh, okay. I'm, I have something to give. Like <laughs> this is good. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's was, perfect timing. <laughs> I was about to say, you know, just a little, you know, tangent, but how do you as a therapist or someone who's kind of like support for other people throughout, you know, difficult times, how do you, you know, cope with that? How do you take care of yourself through all of that? Yeah, that's a great question. And actually something that I feel like for the last several months, especially since COVID has been part of our lives, has been kind of at the forefront. Um, you know, as therapists, we're human. We all have our own issues. And, and I think it's really important for therapists to be in therapy not all the time necessarily. It's not that we have to do it for the re the remainder of our lives, but to be working on our own issues and to be reaching out for support, to be the client in somebody else's chair so that we know what it's like. And, um, and what that usually does is it allows us a little bit of space between me and whoever I'm working with. So even though I work, I have a, a history of trauma myself and I work with complex trauma, I may be six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 steps a little bit further than my client because I've been doing it for so long. And that makes it less exhausting. So I still have to take care of myself, but it's, it's a little bit different. When we talk about COVID and now all of 
our clients, every human, every person in this world really is in the same crisis, there's no space between where I am and where my client is at. And so they're, you know, getting the notification on our fo- on their phone during our session that says, oh, we're still in lockdown for X amount of time at the same moment that I'm getting it on my phone. And they're like, how do I deal with this? And I'm like, I don't know. I didn't even know it was, you know, like, I don't even know the most up-to-date stuff. So it's been this really unique, um, this unique thing that's been happening. Part of it is like, I just come to my sessions and I'm like, I'm human. I mean, I, I will hold this space with you. I will relate to you. I don't have a lot of answers. I don't know what's going on with COVID because nobody knows what's going on. And so I might not have tons and tons of answers, but I can sit with you in this space. So it's been, that's part of a self-care piece is like letting myself off the hook. Like I don't have to, um, come up with this brilliant self-care plan for all my clients and, you know, and I just hold that space, but, but it's also created a lot of exhaustion for myself, for my supervisees, for other therapists I've talked to. And there is kind of this focus of like, I've really got to set boundaries. And that's probably the biggest way that I've been taking care of myself right now is that, I had to decrease my client load um, probably by six or seven sessions a week. And just, you know, I will take up to 16 people a week and and that's it. Or I have nothing to give. I have to walk several laps around my neighborhood every <laughs> single day. Um, I really love reality TV, like The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, not because <laughs> great content, but because it's mindless content. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I'll sit after sessions and I'll watch it and it's like, I can feel my brain like filling back up and like the fog starting to clear. I'm like, okay, this is good. I I can kind of rejoin the the real world again. So I'm a huge fan of self-care obviously, but everybody's different. And I think in this time right now, we're having to kind of figure out what is it that works for me that maybe didn't pre-COVID and now does, or used to be something that was really helpful, maybe like going to the gym and now I don't have access to that. So how do I still incorporate that in a way that's literally safe? Um, And so that, that can be quite a challenge and takes a lot of creativity. So I know I'm kind of rambling, but kind of answers that question. (laughs) (laughs) We're all about rambling here. Oh Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yours is informative. So (laughs) yeah. Well, and this is interesting too. So obviously we're on a podcast so people can't see me, but if you could see me, I'm actually standing on a, uh, a flat treadmill right now. I'm not walking on it because sometimes it makes too much noise and the, my microphone will pick it up, but you, you can see me that I'm swaying back and forth. And so this is actually a therapeutic tool called bilateral stimulation. It helps both sides of our brain and body engage. And so especially when I'm talking about triggering things, when I'm working through um, issues of like, especially religious trauma and sexual trauma with my clients, I hop on the treadmill. And even if I don't walk, if I'm just standing here, I'll sway back and forth because it helps that process through my body. So I'm not holding it all either. And that's been something that has been really helpful for me uh, during this time and and speaks to trauma, speaks to body issues, speaks to all the sorts of things because we feel it in our bodies. And so if you see me swaying here, that's why I'm doing it. It just, it's kind of natural now, but this is part of my self-care routine while I'm working with people is that. I I just know that this is something I need to kind of work things through my body. Yeah. That's cool. 
Yeah. yeah. That's so interesting. We all have that. Normally, like, I'm playing with something. Normally, oh, I love that. Yeah. My uh, AirPods <laughs> or something, a pen. Yeah. I'm always like something's always in my hands. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's yes. helpful to have something like that. So. For sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So like on that topic, like mm-hmm. I guess you know as a coach, one of the biggest things that clients generally struggle with or ask me about. Uh, is when it comes to having troubles with emotional eating, um, how to find better ways to cope, or just to be able to be aware of what they're doing in the moment. Uh, so I think like that's like the biggest aspect that I wanted to kind of pick your brain on of finding new ways to cope or just being able to acknowledge when you are emotionally eating versus uh, when you're just hungry or that sort of thing. So uh, yeah, what are your your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think eating can be a very adaptive way to cope. May not be something that we would deem as quote unquote healthy all the time, if especially if we're eating for reasons other than our body being hungry. Uh, but yeah, it's it's common. And um, you know, it's like, it's, it's very accessible, right? Most of us have, um, access to food, whether it's in our refrigerators or fast food or, or whatnot. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of Janine Roth. Um, she, gosh, she's been around for years. Um, I love her because she's a normal human being. She is not a therapist. I don't know why she never went back to get her degree because she's absolutely (laughs) fabulous. But kind of her claim to fame is she's done every diet out there, every exercise program, everything. And in the course of her life, gained and lost a thousand pounds. Um, and she kind of got to this point and was like, I, this cannot be what life is uh, constantly yo-yo dieting and those sorts of things. And so she started to dig deeper and to go, what, what is it that's going on in our bodies? And it, it sounds similar to intuitive eating, but she came up with this far before intuitive eating was ever like a thing. And it really is listening to your body and starting to get to notice, okay, when I'm headed to the refrigerator to get this snack, if I tune in just for a moment, is my body actually hungry? And if I didn't, if, if I, if the answer was no, and I just sat there for a second, what would I notice that came up that I was going to use food for a distraction, but it, it's what's really going on. And maybe it's that I'm bored or I'm wanting to celebrate or I'm really sad or, or whatnot. And we oftentimes don't want to feel the stuff going on, it actually feels easier to feel guilt for overeating than sadness or betrayal or boredom or loneliness. And so we go, I would prefer, we teach our body subconsciously, I prefer the feeling of guilt or shame for eating food when I'm not hungry than, than really what's going on. And the cool thing about our body is that our body tells us when we're actually hungry. When we start to pay attention, we notice, oh, my stomach is growling. If I miss that cue, my head starts to hurt or I get a little bit foggy. And so our body has these real natural ways of being able to speak to us if we listen. Um, I know I work with some clients sometimes and they're like, I don't know the last time I've ever heard my stomach growl. Like, and I'm like, well, that's that's where we start then. Let's notice how long it actually takes our body to indicate that we are hungry. And that's actually an important piece in trauma work also because we're so disembodied. Trauma and, and disembodiment goes hand in hand. 
but um, but noticing, paying attention to the cues of my body. And if if I'm eating for any other reason other than my body is actually hungry, can I just pay attention to that? Can I be curious about that? Can I wonder what else is going on? That may not mean that you stop yourself from eating the food. It's just starting to gain that awareness of what else is going on. What else might I be using food for that isn't necessarily for sustenance because my body's not indicating that it needs that sustenance right yet. Does that help? Yeah. 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 I'm a, I'm a big fan of that. And I should say too, one of the things I really appreciate about her work is that there's no, she has seven kind of guidelines. Um, and so Janine would say, you know, there's no food that's good or bad. The only food that's bad is if your body is allergic to it, don't eat it. Um, but eat when you're hungry, stop when you're full, <laughs> eat what your body wants. Um, so many times we're like, gosh, I'm like really craving that that chocolate cake and I check in with my body and I'm really actually hungry and I'm really actually craving the cake, but no, that's the bad food. So I'm going to consume everything else in my refrigerator just to not eat the chocolate cake. When in reality, it's like, you know what? I might've had like two or three bites and then like, I'm, I'm good. Yeah, it's fine. Um, and so it's, yes, eat when you're hungry, stop when you're full, eat what your body wants, eat without distractions, enjoy your food. Uh, there's a, there's two other ones I can't remember, but very simple, but it's, it's all paying attention to what's going on inside my body. What am I using food for other than actually I'm hungry? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think one of the biggest things I was thinking about the other day was, or more than a few times, but it's thinking about what your body wants or what your body needs. Like there's two Mm -hmm. different Mm -hmm. ways. Like you're like, I really want this pizza, but what does my body need? Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's kind of like, I feel like just another like adjacent thing to also kind of add to that one section, but it's all Mm -hmm. about awareness. And that's probably just another step to the process. Like you're not always just going to be able to jump in and be aware of absolutely everything of like what your body needs versus what you're craving. It's probably going to take some time to be able to like sort that out. Uh, But that would just be like one little tidbit I'd probably add to that. And it was funny. I, sorry. Oh no, go ahead. I'll, I'll jump Uh, in after you. (laughs) uh, It's a little bit kind of a tangent, but I posted this thing to to Twitter yesterday and I was like, all right, so let's say <laughs> it's been like a stressful day and you want to, you know, you're coming home from work and fast food, any sort of processed food, mm-hmm. like none of it exists. And this is a, a whole new world. It just doesn't exist and it never did. And you come home to unwind, like what would you choose to eat? Mm-hmm. And it's just like, everyone's like <laughs> either you're like d who's like i'd make my own cookies i'm like no you need like processed food for that um but yeah um yeah. it was just funny because it's mm-hmm. like when people don't know it's like it, it's mm-hmm. like there's this connect- they're like oh so there's definitely an emotional connection uh to my eating like if you choose drugs because you're like there's no food and you're like I would choose drugs <laughs> like mm-hmm. red flag that's probably you're you're using that to cope somehow yeah. um yeah so, 
You know, part of this is you're talking, the the thing that comes to mind is this idea of like having a relationship with our body. Um, you know, I know there's a lot going on right now, body positivity, body love, that's great, everything like that. But it's this idea, like if I truly love my body, then part of what that is, is I want my body to feel good. So, um, so for instance, I am very allergic to gluten, but there's like two or three times a year where my body will crave it. And I know, I know when it happens, there's something different that happens and my body does not have an adverse reaction, but it's maybe two or three times a year, every other time there's an adverse reaction. And so, um, it's one of those things of going like, yeah, I'm, I'm craving X, Y, or Z right now. But if I kind of follow that through and I go, what's that going to look like the next day? Or how's that going to impact my mood or my skin or bloating or whatever? Is that the most loving thing that I could be doing? If I view my, myself as being in a relationship with my body, just like I would be with any other person, I don't want to feed that person poison, or I don't want to do things that will make them intentionally, you know, mad at themselves or irritable, not saying we're not responsible for other people's moods, but it's going, if I, if I know that this thing that I eat is actually going to have this adverse response, that's probably not a loving thing to do, which is also why we pay attention to when we're full. It's not loving to feel like you're so full that you could <laughs> throw up. Right. <laughs> so, so yes, it's this idea that also part of this mindfulness and awareness is like, I'm developing a loving relationship with my body so that when she speaks to me and says, that's it. And there's still half a steak left. Like I don't need to plow through the rest of the steak just, you know, because that was what I was taught to do as a kid or, you know, finish all the food on my plate or whatever that is. And so, um, yeah, so part of that is like, am I paying attention to my body and am I developing a relationship with my body that demonstrates that, I use the pronouns she, her, so that she love that I love her in that I'm in a relationship with her. So yeah, that, that can be really helpful too. I think within our community, like uh, the trans community, a lot of people don't like their body at all. Mm -hmm. So they won't listen to it. They, mm -hmm. they won't look at it. And, and I think that at some point, like you have to get to the point where you're either going to try to change it if you don't like it but you have to I, I'm a firm believer is you have to like your body at every place you might not like love it completely but at every point in order to like get over things you have to like yourself at every step of the journey that you're in yeah there's some some huge truth to that it's you know when we the reason I love the the idea of like viewing our body as like a person that we have a relationship with is that if we think of like an actual person, if I tell that person, I hate you, you're ugly. I want to change everything about you. I don't want to spend time with you. I don't even want to look at you. Like, why would we ever think that that person would want to do something for us or with us or change or anything like that, right? It seems very obvious when we think about an actual human being, but then when we actually put that internally and embody that, those are the things that we're saying to and about our body. Then why would we, why should we be shocked when our body's like, yeah, nope, not, not going to do that. Not going to make that move. Not going to lose those few pounds, not going to gain that muscle, whatever it is like, no, because we've been awful to our body. So there has to be, I think to your point D of like this going, 
yeah, I might not love the extra like pounds that I have, but that's not going to be a deterrent. And I'm not going to hate my body because of that. I'm going to learn how to love my body in spite of all of this, which is much easier said than done. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's something to be working on, I think. Yeah. I think also, uh, what would you say concerning why someone might, for example, self-sabotage themselves? So let's say there's a client and they're doing great. And then all of a sudden, uh, they kind of drop off and then they suddenly kind of like start self-sabotaging and just, mm -hmm. um, what would you say, or do you feel like that is a trauma response in some sense or what do you feel like would be the underlying issue with that? Well, I think that every person is going to be unique in terms of if self-sabotaging is happening what the motivation for that is. I think when we start to get like quiet about it and like go beneath the behavior. So self-sabotaging to me is a symptom of something deeper that's going on. And so we go, let's like set that aside for a second. Let's move underneath that. And it could be that, you know, I'm actually quite afraid to have the body I want because maybe the last time I had a body that I liked X, Y, and Z happened, or these people said this, or um, I was treated in a specific way. It might be that I was taught that to have this kind of body meant all these other implications. Um, it might be that nobody has taken well to me when I've been a certain size or shape or anything like that. And so my, my body is afraid of going to that space. You know, there could also be, I, I'm afraid of, of being happy, you know, because every time I've been happy, something has happened and kind of taken that away. And so as soon as I start to really become happy with myself, that actually starts to cue this fear and this vulnerability of, uh, oh God, what's, what's going to come next? And so I think everybody is different, but if we can get underneath and almost look at it like a, a part of us, there's this part of me that's really self-sabotaging. And if I could speak to that part, what would it say that it's scared of would happen if it didn't sabotage this work? Um, and, and there's a, a bit of intuition that we use in that, but oftentimes then we can, you know, we can hear that part go, yeah, well, you know, the last time I was 30 pounds lighter, um, I was, I was sexually, uh, assaulted. And so what I've locked in my mind then is that this weight equals danger because of what happened. And so then we start to look at like, how do we uncouple those things and to go this, the sexual assault happened, there's trauma there. We work with that, but it's not connected to my body weight. Like my body weight had nothing to do with the reason that that thing happened. Does that kind of make sense? Like when we were yeah. able to go under? Yeah. 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 I mean, I'm, I'm definitely one of those people who used to, and sometimes now not as much uh, self-sabotage. Like I would get to, let's say a weight or a goal that I wanted to get to, I would get there and then I would like go off the rails right when I got there mm, and then I would mm -hmm. go back. Yeah. So that used to be my, um, that's what I used to do to myself, not as much anymore. Um, but then I got to realize like, you know, you you have to learn that it's okay to have confidence. It's okay to like believe in yourself and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Which even though that's really wonderful, 
it's terrifying when we've never had that. It's brand new territory. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, it's a learning process of like, how do I actually like live inside this body that I might be quite proud of um, and do that in a way that feels congruent with who I am, regardless of what anybody else says or thinks or feels or wants. That's much harder. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. There was a, I had a thought that I am brain farting on. (laughs) Um, Let's see. Gosh, sorry. I totally was like, oh, I want to bring this up. Um, Oh, no. One of us always brain farts. That's okay. like 10 times. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Okay. So, nope, lost it. Uh, (laughs) Okay. So, I want to say, I'm always so hesitant. Uh, Like, for example, if someone comes to me wanting help, but they're in a place of wanting to change out of self-hate versus self-love. I like I tend to always promote someone go to therapy before they hire like a fitness coach. I uh, sure. just because I can't help people without mm. them being aware of why they're doing things. Like mm. I can only do so much. I yeah. you know as much as I you know I can study up and like study trauma and stuff, which I'm trying to do and that's why yeah. you know I follow you and like now a bunch of other trauma therapists, but yeah, yeah. Uh, and why I like wanted to have you on so bad, but mm-hmm. it's um, yeah. So what would be for my observation when people start fitness routines out of self hate, that's kind of where the disordered eating tends to flourish and that's where it's all born. And like, mm-hmm. even from personal experience, like I can 100% say that's how my whole journey started. Um, but that is very much so a lot related to being trans, but it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Uh, so yeah. what is your opinion or suggestion on that? Mm-hmm. Like switching kind of the narrative from self-hate to self-love. Yeah. yeah, I think that's important. And I totally agree with you that, again, going back to that idea of like, if we are in a relationship with our body, and it's born from self-hate, there is going to be a point where we come up against a block like that we cannot move past because your body's like, yeah, I've done everything I can for you. If you still hate me, like <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to move further here. Right. So, you know, there's no easy answer to how do we switch from self-hate to self-love? Because again, it is a very personalized process and we have to understand like, where did that come from? Um, a couple thoughts though, that I always encourage people to do is first of all, to go like, whose voice is that? You know, most of us, well, I don't think any of us were born. Um, I, I say any of us because I know in a lot of religious contexts, the opposite is taught, but most of us were not born hating ourselves. You know, we're born trying to get our needs met and trying to connect in those sorts of things. We learned shame. We learned some of these awful messages. We learned how to hate ourselves because of the things that were going on outside of us. Now, we may have learned them over and over and over so that they become so ingrained that we actually think it's coming from inside of us, which is a concept called interojection, that I take the messages from the external, I embody them, and then they come out in my own voice. Um, But I think sometimes when we can get some space away and we go, whose voice is that? We start to realize like, 
oh God, that that's what my mom used to say that all the time. <laughs> or this was something that my older sibling said to me or did to me, or this is something I heard in church or from the culture or whatever. And that actually didn't come from within me. I may have embodied it and kind of twisted around and internalized it and whatever, but it never actually came from me to begin with. And sometimes just that space away to like say, oh, that's not me. It gives me room to maybe challenge that voice, to tell that voice to pipe down, to explore it, to be curious. Um, as an example, I um, do, I call it my greenway therapy. I do it with myself, but I do it with clients too, where I, I will walk, we'll do therapy sessions on like a, a path along the river. And we slow, we walk very slowly because it's that bilateral processing again. And we'll, we'll kind of work through things. And I have a client who was wonderful and she had just so much self-hatred. We kind of worked through this and, um, and she realized that that voice in her head was not her own, but that it came from her mother. And we'll just call her mom, Mary, because it's an easy name. And so she would literally out loud be like fuck off mary and it gave her enough like it kind of was hilarious to her to, to be able to say that to her mom and she didn't actually say it to her mom i should be clear like it was just kind of like in those moments where she noticed like this is what's kind of rolling around in my head and she would be like fuck off mary it gave her enough kind of a chuckle to like kind of get back into the moment and to realize that's mary's voice that's not my voice and so what would i want to say instead what I want to be like, you know what, Mary, that is not okay. That's never how you should have spoken to me because what the truth is, is this, you know? And, and so there is a little bit that we can kind of explore there. Um, there could be trauma underneath that, that is, you know, ha has kind of manifested itself in self-hatred. Um, but I think getting that space can oftentimes be really, really helpful. And then the other thing too, is in terms of like little therapeutic exercises, I love, um, questions of what if, like it is in a curious way. So like, if we kind of just dance around the perimeter, if self-love is in the middle and we have this perimeter around it and we go, I'm not there, I'm not going to fake it and be like, oh, I love myself because that's, you know, we're, that's not what it's, our body's like, yeah, shut up. Like, I know that's not the Save case. Save that right? for uh, the, the Instagram, you know, <laughs> yeah. pretending you love yourself. Yeah, exactly. And so if we go, okay, I'm not there yet. I'm just kind of on the perimeter to go, well, could I ask that question? So maybe somebody says something really kind to me and I would normally dismiss that. Instead, could I go, what if they were right? I'm not gonna accept it. I'm gonna just give myself a little bit of space to be curious and ask what if, and I may not change my opinion or anything, but I'm again, like I'm stopping that subconscious pattern and I'm just giving myself an opportunity to kind of go around the perimeter and say, there is a possibility that this other thing could be true about me or this situation. And so it at least starts to give us um, a, a different like pattern to be thinking of. And then we can take like the next smallest step in and the next, and I don't have like a step-by-step -step of this is what it looks like to get to self-love, but it's just, let's start with the teeny tiniest little thing that maybe we could question and that can help us kind of make a few steps further. Yeah. Does that answer that question? Yeah, for sure. And that's probably something that people could implement from like the get go if they're starting a fitness or, you know, journey just to have that in the back of their head to be like asking those questions or yeah. being aware of that 
inner voice or whose it actually is uh, mm. versus <laughs> thinking that it's coming from themselves or that it's yeah. true and all that stuff. Yeah, um, there's something really empowering when we realize that's actually not my voice. That is somebody else's. We don't even have to figure out whose it is. I just know it's not mine. And that feels really empowering because then that means that I can like reject that or silence that. And I have the ability to have the loudest voice in my life. That's very important. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. I like that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that will definitely help uh, a lot of people um, because even like when I was growing up, um, my brothers and, you know, my mom, they weren't the nicest to me. So I had to realize that what they were saying or what they were making fun of me because I was overweight like that. I don't have to make fun of myself because they were making fun of me. So but it took a long time to realize that. Um, mm. But I think people listening to this will like it'll click in their head and it'll start the process. Mm -hmm. So I think that's good. Yeah, it is pretty powerful when we can realize like like the ways that we had to cope in order to make other people comfortable with us. So whether that was like, I'm having to accept these words or I'm, you know, I know for me, like I, I took on a lot of my mother's insecurities. Like I, my, you know, body image, you know, since we're talking about that, like I didn't have those issues until I realized my mother did. And the only way I figured out to connect with her was through developing body issues um, so that we could, quote unquote, have that in common. Um, and so when we can realize like that was a coping mechanism that I developed in order to survive and to have a relationship that was part of myself that I gave up in order to have the relationship I craved with my parents or siblings or whoever, that can be empowering. But we need to realize that like, yeah, how does if if that weight is the problem or the identified problem, is it possible that it's helped me navigate and survive in relationships um, in, a, in a myriad of ways? That's so funny. I was just thinking about, <laughs> you know, as, as someone who has lived on both sides of the, the gender spectrum, it's yeah. such a, a night and day thing, you know, like women will get together and talk about what they hate about their bodies yeah. and men are walking around like, I got the biggest <laughs> dick. So it's like, <laughs> yes. Well, it, it, how does you this are happen? Lucky. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, it's like, true. You walk into a locker room at a gym, and like all the old men are just butt ass naked. Oh, before, you know, I will never that, get used to that. It's like what? <laughs> I did not. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> um. So it's night and day, even with socialization of females versus uh, males, and it's it's interesting how that that works. Very interesting, and <laughs> some things I just never get used to. <laughs> I'm just sitting here. I'm like, this is so fascinating. Because like, I never, I never in a locker room as a woman. I never. Women weren't really naked. No. No, no, they are unless they're like no. eighty. Yes, correct. Yeah, because by that point you're like, I don't give two shits. I'm gonna do whatever the hell I want. Yep. I've always been like, okay, when can I get to that point? You know. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but I've heard I've heard men's locker room stories in that sense of like, yeah, they just nobody cares, you know. Nope. It just you just walk around naked and like you're kind of just like, oh, dude, like I might envy that or I might aspire to that or <laughs> I might be really proud of what I have and that you don't, you know. But it's just a, it's a different world, yeah. 
That's yeah, crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I love it. Gender social socializations can be very different, but mm -hmm. that's definitely mm -hmm. one of the first things I noticed. Um, yeah. yeah. In relating to to body image, so I mean, even now, so I feel like um, you know, men are are getting hit pretty hard when it comes to uh, their physique or their their body and stuff like that. So they're not like immune to things, uh, but I think uh, when it comes to body dysmorphia, what would you say, like, what is the definition of that? How would you identify, like, if it's something that you struggled with? Mm -hmm. uh, all that fun stuff. <laughs> I could pull up the textbook definition if you want me to, but I tend to kind of describe body dysmorphia as like an over-identification with a certain part of your body. And over-identification meaning like you're obsessed with it. So it's the, the only thing that I'm thinking about or I'm constantly trying to change this. And like, we'll use like a nose. Somebody might have body dysmorphia around their nose and they're terrified of like, is my nose too big, too small? What do other people think of it? How can I downplay it so that people aren't noticing it there's also a fear that goes along with it that certainly if I'm like very aware of it everybody else must be aware of it too and it can really drive towards a lot of different behaviors whether that's um like depression because I'm just I can't seem to change this part of me uh you know, and you think about your nose, it's like, yeah, you can't do workouts for your nose. You can't like, you know, our noses can change over time, but you know, it doesn't really matter if I eat too much or too little, my nose is going to be roughly the same. I have to actually go get surgery if I want to change my nose. And so you could feel really helpless. That could put you into a space of depression or anxiety or um, OCD like behaviors where I'm constantly um, obsessive or my behaviors are compulsive around this specific body part. Um, and so, yeah, I think that is very common. Um, it's traditionally been more common in um, female bodied individuals than male bodied individuals. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with our so socialization, but it's, it's, it can be an issue for anybody. Um, and I know too, when I've talked with people in the trans community, there has been more of that leaning too, because you go, I'm not quite sure what body I fit into and how am I supposed to look in this body and is this okay? And, and so I think that, you know, we have to take all of that into context. And so I don't want to like single out and be like, oh, only female bodied people that are cisgender are going to be dealing with this. No, um, this can be anybody. And it doesn't have to be your whole life either. It could be that, you know, the older you get or the thinner you get or the heavier you get or whatever, you know, different things can come. Sometimes it can be an, an effort to control. Um, it can be like a distraction. So if I focus everything on this aspect of my body, I don't have to pay attention to other things, whether they're physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual. Um, and, and then other times it can become just like the thing that I'm focused on all the time. And that's, that's where the issues are, is, is kind of the obsession there. I think you may have asked another question tethered to that, but I can't remember. So let me know if I need to speak more on something. Uh, maybe not, but maybe you're just predicting my next question. Ah, uh, no. <laughs> I was going to say like, so a lot of times I've noticed that there is, people have a hard time recognizing the difference between gender dysphoria and body dysmorphia. Um, I think we're noticing more and more that sometimes people confuse gender dysphoria when it's actually body dysmorphia or vice versa. 
Um, so do you have any like insight as to how to tell the difference, I guess? Okay. This is not something I've spent a huge amount of time. thinking <laughs> It's on okay. On. <laughs> so I want to be really careful about how I, how I answer this. Um, have to be too careful. I promise you're not going to yeah. like, <laughs> I'm like riffing that. here. <laughs> but I think about when we think about our gender, our bodies, like who we truly are, to me, that feels more ingrained than my nose is too big. Does, mm. does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So when, when the dysmorphia or, uh, or whatnot is around, I don't know, I, I could be totally off. I just, I kind of feel like there's all our identity of who we are as a person and then, you know, the physical aspect of our body um, that could be linked together, but don't have to be linked together. And so I think maybe where I would do more exploration in terms of like, how do you deal with that is like starting to pull that apart and to go, what part of this is connected to my actual identity as a human being versus what is connected to fuck, my nose is too big. Um, mm. That's from socialization, cultural standards, you know, uh, maybe a, as a distraction, those sorts of things. Is that, I, I know that's, that might not be a satisfying answer, but I want to, <laughs> I haven't spent <laughs> enough time to like, feel like I could answer that in an expert type way <laughs> to go no. beyond that. Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. I do think there's a, a more of a, you know, who you are versus like what you look like type of, of aspect yeah. to making the difference between that. I think what comes to mind mostly is I knew someone who like really did not like their chest, but it wasn't because they were experienced gender dysphoria. It was just that it was like, had to do with past like sexual assault or just appearing female. Yes. Um, so that's one thing that came to mind where it's like, I feel mm -hmm. like there are circumstances where people can mistake that. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, absolutely. Yeah. And that's why I think it is so important to do our own trauma work because trauma can come out in really sideways ways that we go, oh, that has nothing to do. So great example, like if maybe I've been sexually assaulted, all of a sudden I have this disgust for my chest uh, because of something that happened and I start to relate it to my identity, who I am as a, as a human being. Um, and And maybe we take measures to uh, change that in some way. And we go, God, that like, doesn't change the inside of me. Like that doesn't change maybe my disgust, how I feel inside my body because of this thing that happened. And so when we do the trauma work, that doesn't mean that we might not change our chest someday, but it means that it's coming from a different space rather than like a woundedness, that space of pain and, and, and that sort of thing. So I think that's a really important thing to, to talk about because trauma can have such an all-encompassing and very like um, weird, random, you know, symptoms and side effects yeah. um, that, that we do need to pay attention to. Yeah, I think that's why I'm always like such an advocate for therapy. Uh, you know, whatever you're embarking on, whether it's transition or whatever, it's just yeah. like these are such big life decisions. Um, mm -hmm. Therapy can help you sort everything out. And it's like, it's not to say, oh, yeah, you, you might change your mind. You should go to therapy. It's like, it's just you need to, 
you know, go over all the possibilities and also know that you're coming to this conclusion on your own, not from a situation or from any yeah. sort of past right. um, trauma. So I'm always like, I know therapy, it's one more step to like get to where you think you want to be or what's going to like make you the happiest. But mm -hmm. oh, it's so important. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I also agree. I think it's so important to celebrate and live out of our authenticity, who we are, to our core identity. Um, and that is going to take various shapes and sizes externally. Um, but I have found for myself personally that how I view myself externally has changed drastically when I've done the internal work. Um, and and even though there's parts of me that I'm like, I think this needs to change because I, it's connected to the trauma, like I can still love those parts of me um, because they protected me and, you know, all of these sorts of things. And um, I think it is so important to do that inner healing work um, because then everything is kind of like icing on the cake in a sense. I know that's all like oversimplifying it, but when I've done my inner work and then my external can match my internal, like that's incredible. That's an incredible feeling to be walking congruently in the world. Yeah, for sure. And it's such a weird experience sometimes. Like when you start to, when you do become kind of aware of what you're doing and why you're doing it, mm -hmm. <laughs> sometimes you do something and then you just like take a step back and you're like, God damn it. <laughs> like that's why I'm doing that. Um, but yeah, just awareness is so important. Uh, yeah. So it's like, Therapy, please just go. <laughs> yeah. And I want to say too, like, um, you know, when we talk about doing trauma work or any sort of therapeutic work, there is not like um, an end point that we're getting to. So part of my work with my um, doctoral research is the concept of living in a healing body after sexual trauma, not living in a healed body. So that the difference between ED and ING, because healing is ongoing. And so it's not like you can't go through some external transformations, whatever that needs to look like, until you get to the point where healed, period, end of sentence. It's a very like natural progression where all of a sudden you go, gosh, I've been working at this for six months or for a year, and I realize I'm a different person, and I'm looking to make these things more congruent. So it's not that we have to get to a certain point where it's like, okay, now I can do these sorts of things, it's, it's, yeah, it's very different for everybody, but I want to make sure that people hear that we're not saying like, oh, you have to go to therapy for like at least 10 years before you <laughs> transition. No, not yeah. saying that at all. For some people, it might be 10 years. For other people, it might be six months. I don't know what your issues are, um, but it's doing the internal work so that whenever you get to that space, you're like, this is literally just the natural like flow of where I'm headed in my life. And there's something really beautiful and celebratory about that. Yeah, for sure. And I think even whether it's transition or that's why when it comes to, you know, fitness journeys, I'm always like, it takes time. It's, it it's not going to be overnight because, you yeah. know, whether you're on point with your calories or, or whatever, it's not just calories. Like your body is not just calories. You have emotions and you have a brain yeah. that's going to like rebel and it's just going to be hard mm -hmm. because it's a relationship with your body. So like if you 
you know, you don't just fall in love with someone overnight. You're not going to fall in love with yourself overnight. It's a process and mm-hmm. it's more than yeah. just yeah. calories in, calories out. It's like, oh my gosh, there's so much more. <laughs> yeah. I know there's a show, I'm sure you've watched it. What is it? The Biggest Loser. I, I know oh, yeah. it, there's like not, there's some <laughs> like major pushback for good reason around it. But I remember years ago when it was on kind of the first time, Mm -hmm. I remember one of the trainers saying to one of the contestants, like, you did not wake up one morning 300 pounds overweight. This was like this progression of things that happened in a series of uh, choices or circumstances that happened to you and because of you. So the weight is also not going to come off overnight. It's going to be a series of choices and decisions and situations that you make um, that goes beyond just what is what is the amount of calories I'm putting in my body or the amount of calories that I'm burning through an exercise, but how am I choosing to live differently emotionally, relationally, socially, spiritually, intellectually, all of these sorts of things. It takes time and it's a living dynamic process. We don't get to a point and we're like, good, there, now I never have to think about a food that I eat or how much exercise I do or um, how I'm going to respond in this situation. It's like, no, we, this is, we're creating a new life. Um, and, and so I think that's really important um, to note in all of that too. This is a living process. For sure. And it's like, even, you know, those mistakes are going to happen, but you just, that's part like, of the process is learning yeah. from them. <laughs> those <laughs> like, are sometimes how do you not the do best moments. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then <laughs> there's also, I mean, definitely a show. So you like, random reality TV shows to check out too. So do I. Uh, But my go-to for the longest time was my 600 pound life. But this is kind of really, it's it's probably not completely checking out because it's like so fascinating to me because all the treatment around it, I feel like I just want to just scratch so much of it. But they finally started incorporating therapists into the mix of things. And I'm like, they should have started this way like yeah. all the yeah. time. Because <laughs> there's always, when they tell the story of the person, there is always trauma. underlying trauma. Always. Yeah. Every yeah. single time. Yeah. So it's like, mm-hmm. you don't need your stomach stapled. You need to deal with your trauma. It's so, um, yeah. Yeah. If you ever watch that show, I don't know. That'll I'm, be interesting. I might have to check out a couple episodes just for that reason. <laughs> you should. And if you do, <laughs> let I will let know. you know. <laughs> um, yeah. It's a little yeah. bit weird. It feels a little weird to watch, especially. Okay. So, Doctor Now. You should just I love Doctor Now. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, he has no filter. You no. know how? So, if you're going to, you know, talk to a patient or, you know, a client, like you're going to be you know, straightforward, but in a, in a nice, you're going to deliver it in a nice way. He's just like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> just on full throttle yeah, 100% like, of the time. Yeah. You should have lost a hundred pounds. You didn't. Yeah. yeah. Like, wow. <laughs> so I don't That's know. That's a lot of shame. Exactly. <laughs> it's not that bad. <laughs> yeah. Like, he says sometimes what you want to say, but that doesn't mean you should. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah, sorry, tangent. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I will. I'll definitely check it out. But what you said there is like everybody, like as soon as they start talking to therapists, like is like, oh, I have all this trauma, and I think that you know that is something really important to take into account. Everybody's body responds to trauma very differently. 
So, um, you know, some people, you, uh, you were uh, talking about like the female disappearing kind of sort of thing. So like a lot of, if a woman is sexually assaulted, there's, it's not uncommon that they would get really, really, really tiny or really, really, really big. What they're trying to do because of the way they've so been socialized is disappear or be hidden essentially. And that's the way that their body has deemed necessary to protect them from whatever has happened to them. Their body's like, this was a dangerous situation. We don't want this to happen again. So what do we need to do in order to keep ourselves safe? Well, if I get really tiny and I appear to be asexual, that might be really, that might detract people from looking at me and, and viewing me as a target. If I get really heavy, um, that might detract from people looking at me as in a sexual way, because maybe they would be disgusted by my body. I don't maybe like either end of the spectrum, but if it keeps me safe, my, my body will stay at that spot. And so we go, well, then why am I not losing the weight or why can't I gain the weight? It's not because necessarily that we're doing anything wrong, quote unquote, you know, like we're exercising, we're eating correctly, we're taking care of ourselves. It's because we haven't dealt with the underlying trauma. And when our body goes, oh, it's safe to be whatever this size is, then we start to notice like the weight might just fall off, like literally just like fall off naturally, or we might gain it in a way that feels really healthy. And it's not hard to then maybe maintain that size that that is healthy for our bodies. So I think it is important to notice that like trauma is very subjective, of course, between every person, what's traumatic for you may or may not be for me, but also the way that our body decides how to keep us safe is subjective from each person. So that's a very important part. And even as you're training and working with people, you know, especially if they come up against blocks, rather than to go like, what are you doing wrong? To go like, what what's happened? What happened to you? Is there something, is there a reason why your body doesn't want to push past this point? Um, and, and exploring it kind of on that deeper level is really important. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of along the lines where I was going to say, like, you've talked before about how we hold trauma in our body. And that's kind of a thing that you address a lot. Like, I've never, you know, heard that from from anyone else of like addressing the trauma that you are holding in your body and kind of how to like sense that or like check in with yourself, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Um, can you kind of touch on that a little bit? Yeah, well, you know, empirically speaking, so that's research driven, um, um, what we know is that trauma is our body's response to something that happened versus it actually being like a thing that a, or an event or an experience that happened, which is why it's so subjective. I think we talked about this in, a, in the video that we did, like we could both be walking down the road and witness like a very bad car accident and how you respond to it and then manifest kind of what life looks like for you after that point might look very different than how I respond to it in that moment and what happens after that point. You might be really scared to drive and I might not have any problem driving. And it doesn't mean that one's better or worse. It just means that our body has responded in a different way. And that's where the nervous system comes into place. So we hear these terms like fight, flight, freeze. Um, that's our body's way of navigating situations that are too much, too soon, too overwhelming. And it kind of like floods our system and we're not able to kind of manage. So our body goes into a couple different like responses in order to keep us safe. Now, if we... 
um, are able to kind of discharge that energy after the threat has passed, the energy, the trauma energy doesn't stay stored in our body. But for most of us, by that, you know, by the time the threatening situation is over, we're telling ourselves like, oh, it really wasn't that bad. Or the car accident didn't happen to me, so I should be fine. And we kind of mute those responses. And so what happens then is the trauma energy continues to live inside our bodies. It's not going anywhere, but it is looking for ways to get out. So that's where, you know, I might be triggered by a sight or a sound or a smell. And all of a sudden I feel like I'm back in this moment again. And I look around and I'm like, no, this is five years later. Why does my body feel the same? It's because that trauma energy is looking for a way out. And so that manifests itself in all sorts of different ways. It could be autoimmune disorders. It could be weight. It could be depression, insomnia, gastrointestinal issues, um, social, like social phobias, social isolate, isolation, um, relational difficulties. It could, you know, look like, um, personality disorders, bipolar, um, you know, kind of some significant mental health disorders. And those are the ways that our body's trying to like organize and figure out what's going on and keep us safe. And so it can manifest itself in all of these different ways. So as a therapist who works with trauma, I obviously will take people's complaints into consideration. And if they're like, I'm showing, you know, X, Y, Z issue. It's not like I just tell them, okay, we'll just shut up. Let's like work on the trauma. <laughs> but, <laughs> but usually what I'll say is like, okay, let's incorporate that piece. So if you're having gastrointestinal issues, I have a client right now who has major GI issues and she's like, I just have to change my diet and I have to stop doing this and start doing this. Maybe. I mean, it's not going to hurt um, hurt you to like have a, a diet that has more leafy greens in it. That's fine. But if we go beneath that and we start to look at like what is happening underneath the GI issues and what is your body using that for as a way to deal with the pain that you have endured your whole entire life, we work from that point of it and we start to notice some of the things like alleviate themselves. I'm not a gastrointestinal specialist. I'm not a doctor, right? But I've worked with many clients where when we've worked on the trauma, the GI stuff has gone away because that's simply just how our body was holding it or where our body was holding the trauma. So sometimes we don't even have to touch the symptoms. It's just when we deal with the trauma, um, those symptoms sometimes alleviate itself. Not all the times. I have, I have friends that... Um, you know, we're diagnosed with bipolar. And even though we've worked on the trauma, like they still have bipolar, like they still have to take medicine. So I'm not saying it's like this magic cure, but oftentimes we will see that symptoms will either alleviate themselves or get remarkably better or more manageable when we've dealt with the trauma underneath. For sure. And I think it just kind of confirms that, you know, the body is not just a whole bunch of separate parts that don't communicate. No. Um, the body is all connected. So it's all yes. of it is important. Just to focus on one thing uh, doesn't mean that that's going to make everything better. So it's just nice to think, you know, treating it all <laughs> is probably going to be more successful or treating it as, you know, a system versus just, yes. you know, oh, it's my, it's my gut or it's my head or my arm, whatever. It's like, we're yeah. all connected. So yeah. uh, could be a few things. <laughs> yeah. And I think going back to that idea of like our relationship with our body. So you think about a relationship with a human being, 
if I only ever get to know one part of a person, so maybe I just see them in a work circumstance, like we're, we're colleagues. And so I only see them in that. That's not a true relationship because I'm only seeing one part of them. I don't see all the other parts of them that are displayed in many other environments. That's not a true relationship. And so to your point then, if like when I'm focusing just on this one part of my body, that's not to say that different parts might not need more attention at different times, but when I go, oh no, it's just this, like I'm, that's not a relationship. That's singling out and saying, you know, like I'm gonna just focus on this. This is all I'm going to choose to see you as without taking the whole thing into uh, consideration. So I think that is, when we think about our body, externalize it first, think about how that would look with another human being. And oftentimes then that'll give us clarity and like, yeah, I can't just focus on like my chubby hand. <laughs> I need to focus on the whole thing, right? Or, you know, this shaking thing that happens, you know, when I'm really scared. I don't need to just die that down. I need to figure out like what's going on in my body as a whole that's producing that response. Yeah. yeah. For sure. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. uh, Dee, did you have any thoughts or questions you're so quiet I feel like I'm like no, I was just what listening you, what are you doing over there <laughs> I was just listening and taking it all in <laughs> is this new information for you or is this uh kind of I don't think it's it's not all new information I think it's different ways of putting what I'm feeling into words mm, yeah and how and, and how yeah. I can help other people mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you familiar, either of you familiar with the book, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk? Yes. I've heard been of meaning to get that or like get it on the audiobook thing, but I'm like, I have to wait till next month because I already used my credit. <laughs> I know. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, as you talk about like, you know, the work that you're doing individually and then with other people and trying to understand like, how do I navigate that at a deeper level? Um, that to me is one of kind of the foremost books, I guess, that kind of describes more of what we're talking about. Work by Peter Levine, uh, Bessel van der Kolk. Um, there's a bunch of other ones you can probably find on my Instagram. Like I'll highlight their books and stuff. There is a lot more research, both anecdotal research and empirical research that's coming out that's really verifying everything that we're talking about today that our body does store trauma or yeah, our body stores trauma. It's not like a a timestamp in our brain that we can just go, that happened back then and I'm here now, so I'm fine. It would Sorry. be, are, are we up? Is that like I have to wrap up my speech? No, I'm at my parents' house because my <laughs> Wi-Fi is out. So we live in 1969. It's okay. Very nice. Um, well, if it helps my parents, I'll have a <laughs> landline. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, but there is, I, I think that's the lovely part about places like social media and Instagram is that there's a lot of therapists that are like getting this information out there and it's all congruent with the latest um, and most effective research. Um, and so, it, you know, as you're working with your clients too, I think that can be a huge tool. Um, and I really am like so like heartened to see people outside of the therapy field that are going, how do I become more trauma-informed? How do I work with trauma inside my um, environment, whether that's like 
I'm a nurse or I'm a trainer or I'm a coach or I'm a teacher or I'm just a human being who wants to understand other people. Um, I love that there's this discussion around like, how do I understand trauma and understand how that can impact people on all these various levels um, as I work with them in my own particular profession. It's cool. So thank you. Thank you for like being willing to educate uh, on trauma and just, you know, sharing the information and your time and stuff. So I'm just like super appreciative to like everything that you have put out, whether it's really just trauma or just trauma in general. so yeah, I think that and, wraps and up. And for like, being what our have, first but... guest too. Yeah. Yeah. Do I get <laughs> so... like a sticker or a badge or something for that? <laughs> <laughs> if we ever have uh, merchandise, swag. you can get love it. the swag. I'm the first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, but yeah, great. did you want to like drop your uh, social media oh. stuff so people know where to find you? Yeah, I am probably the easiest to find on Instagram, and I just changed my handle so that everything can be congruent. Uh, it is my handle is Laura Anderson Therapy. Uh, that's also my website, lauraandersontherapy.com, and that's probably the best way to get in touch with me. I do other social media stuff, but just really randomly and not with as much like intention as I do with Instagram. So. Yeah, you can find me there. Every Friday I do like a Q&A. Uh, it's usually around trauma, therapy, anything, you know, related to that. And you can submit your questions and I, I answer them all or I try to. Um, but yeah, that's that's where you can find me. Um, my website and my Instagram. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for coming on here. Okay. And uh, Dee, did you want to close it out with the usual? <laughs> Uh, we just want to thank everyone for listening. And if you could give us a review on Apple Podcasts, that would be great. That's how we get our podcast out to you. Uh, and if you also want to go follow Laura and show her some love, that would be great too, because um, we appreciate having her on the show. And we will see you guys next week. <laughs>